Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And on today's show, we are thrilled to be joined by a special guest, Dr. Hollis Robbins. She is the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Sonoma State University. And before that, she was the Chair of the Department of Humanities at the Peabody Institute at Johns Hopkins University. And most importantly, for today's episode, she is a scholar of African American poetry, the author of several books, including the just-published Forms of Contention, Influence, and the African American Sonnet Tradition from the University of Georgia Press. So welcome, Dr. Robbins, to Close Talking. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. You guys have a great podcast focusing on close reading. Quickly, before we dive into the poem that you selected for us today, I just want to mention the poem is called Freedom Rider Washout, and we are recording very shortly after the passing of John Lewis, who was, in addition to many other forms of leadership and activism that he uh, took part in during the Civil Rights Movement, was one of the original Freedom Riders. Yes, uh, one of the original 13 um, went on his first uh, trip in May of 1961. And when I picked this poem, uh, hadn't thought about um, about him, and, and I'm glad we're getting to memorialize his passing. Absolutely, and it's great to be able to draw attention at least a little bit to that chapter of history, specifically the, the work that the Freedom Riders did. Um, the poem is, is spoken in the voice of a Freedom Rider, and when we get to the poem, we can talk about that a little, little bit more. The uh, Freedom Riders were uh, groups of individuals who were taking bus rides. Um, ultimately, there were about 60 different rides and about 400 Freedom Riders took part in this to ensure voting as a central part of the civil rights movement. And John Lewis was part of the first Freedom Rider uh, Freedom Ride in May of 1961 um, because of his participation in the Nashville lunch counter desegregation. As a young child growing up in Alabama, I had been told over and over again, don't get in trouble. But I got in trouble. It was good trouble. We'd be sitting down. And the, these riders were trained because they knew they'd, they would um, he, they'd get a lot of opposition and violence. And someone would come up and put a lighted cigarette out in our hair or down our backs, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on us, spit it on us. Um, many times John Lewis talks about uh, being thrown in jail, being beaten up, um, ending up in prison, um, you know, at some point in time, KKK, you know, attack the buses, get on the buses. And these riders were trained in nonviolence trained to withstand being called names, um, being hit, being spit, on, uh, being spit on, and the training was essential to the entire uh, Freedom Rider uh, endeavor. You know, your mom and your daddy tells you, if somebody hit you, you hit them back. I did not grow up being nonviolent. I had a very short fuse. I believed in protecting myself, and so to be now told that somebody's gonna slap me or spit on me or throw water on me and I'm not to do anything about it is against my human nature. So I had to understand why I had to uh, uh, 
certainly not give in to that impulse to defend myself. And so knowing this background is really helpful to reading the poem. Absolutely. And John Lewis, at many instances during his activism, was in fact personally the subject of great violence, most famously as part of the march that was crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He was beaten severely on that day. Um, and many freedom writers were putting their physical safety and indeed their lives were on the line. There's James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner who were actually killed as a result of their activism uh, by not just officers of the KKK, but in cooperation with law enforcement. And in fact, law enforcement should be on the side of the freedom riders, but in fact, it was very often uh, where they faced great danger. This poem, a sonnet on the freedom rider experience and as a freedom to be a washout <laughs> of a freedom rider was uh, was remarkable. Um, and so to, to to read it in the context of uh, thinking about John Lewis is really, um, really resonant. On the one hand, it was a, you know, civil rights era poem about being a freedom writer. On the other hand, it is a poem that is about the entire sonnet tradition. I think it's time to dig in. Why don't we, you mentioned it's freedom writer washout. Why don't we have you uh, read the poem to kick us off? All right. Um, James A. Emanuel's Freedom Rider Washout, 1968. And I should say, just the way it's um, spelled out, it's Freedom Rider colon washout. Freedom Rider washout. The first blow hurt. God is love, is love. My blood spit into the dirt. Sustain my love, O oh Lord above. Curses circled one another. They were angry with their brother. I was too weak for this holy game. A single freckled fist knocked out the memory of his name. Bloody, I heard a long black moan, like waves from slave ships long ago. With Gabriel Prosser's dogged knuckles, I struck an ancient blow. So good. So good. Had you heard this before? Had you known this before? I had not. Um, I was, yeah, I was blown away when I first read it and I was immediately cursing myself for having not um, encountered it before. It's, yeah. What do you think? Oh my, well, I so many thoughts. Um, I mean, I just, I love how, I mean, my, so my first encounter, we were going to talk about it and then we received your book. So I have a lot of thoughts related to your particular analysis, which I'm excited to get into. Um, but one, one aspect of it that I loved so much was like that the first line, the first blow hurt. And then the, the first line of the second stanza, the, I was too weak and how those are so direct and like, short it's such a bold move in a sonnet to like just be like okay my first <laughs> two stanza lines will be half the length of um you know what it would traditionally be um but that it like i don't know still was then engaging with a lot of the sort of conventions of a sonnet made it clear that it was delivered in this deliberate in this way that was just like i don't know it was pretty remarkable. Like, I love how it centers on this one very specific, you know, moment and scene of like 
getting you know punched and then basically <laughs> throwing uh his own punch um but then also by the end those you know last few lines of like you know i heard a long black moan like waves from slave ships long ago with gabriel prosser's dog and knuckles i struck an ancient blow just like brings in this whole history of enslavement and gabriel prosser you know was hanged for inciting trying to incite a slave rebellion it charges that one very like small moment of time that you know could be like two or three seconds or something and like infuses it with with all of that history its departures from the sonnet form were absolutely deliberate every line of that poem is a critique of the sonnet form and a dependence on a, on the sonnet form and i had had i stumbled upon it very late in writing my book and had been writing about you know certainly about claude mckay and about gwendolyn brooks and about these really important sonnet uh, African-American sonnet writers who understood the gravity of the poem. Um, and that, that sort of, you know, went away after a while um, in the 60s. So coming across this poem, Freedom Rider, Washout, and, I, and you know, it doesn't look like a sonnet because it, you know, doesn't, has 14 lines, but it doesn't, isn't an iambic pentameter. And you look at it, and you narrow your eyes and you say, wait a second, <laughs> that is a sonnet. I'm curious, it's so interesting that you, this was late in your research for the book well, i don't know how did it like sort of challenge or how were you able to incorporate a, it into yeah so so writing this book has taken a long time i'm sort of i'm uh, gonna go backwards before this book so i i love poetry for a long time love sonnets i had sort of fallen into um, being a scholar of african-american literature through some collaborations with henry Louis gates jr of harvard uh, primarily about novels and slave narratives uh, that we worked on together. But in the course of just teaching African-American literature, I ended up teaching um, the Norton Anthology, his Norton Anthology of African-American um, literature, and kept you know teaching the poetry, because sometimes poetry is a great thing to teach when students have a busy week. You're like, okay, let's just do poems this week, right? <laughs> you don't have to read a long novel. <laughs> Little did they know they were gonna, the papers are still the same length, right? <laughs> and I kept yep. noticing the sonnets, right? Claude McKay's sonnets and Dunbar's sonnets and County Cullen's sonnets and Gwendolyn Brooks's sonnets. And so I started like, oh, like, cool, this is, this is great. And I looked around at the criticism and started writing the way one does and saw that there was very little written about the African-American sonnet tradition. Um, and what I mean by a tradition is that each individual author has been written about but when you, the scholarship on what makes a poetic tradition generally focused on poetic forms that were organically black, you know, blues or spirituals or, you know, certain kinds of uh, right now rap, right? Is that things that were organically black, but did not focus on traditional forms. Not only that, you know, one kept, kept noticing the way that black poets would apologize for the sonnet. Right? And my book uh, opens up with a, a scene of uh, Natasha Trethewey saying, oh, I know I'm using a European form. <laughs> and, you know, at this point in time, I'm like, wait a second, why does everybody call this a European form when African-American poets have been using it for over 150 years and using it really, really well, right? Why, what, why doesn't a Black poet say, I got it from this other Black poet, right? You know, and... 
every now and again in poetic criticism, you'd, you'd hear, in fact, there was a great um, interview some years ago with James Emanuel, who said, there's ways that he's very much like Brooks, Gwendolyn Brooks. And that is a rare moment that I found in Black poetic criticism, right? And so I was really interested in just the ways, why would the sonnet writers use sonnets, right? And in some cases, you know, it was to, like with uh, um, Gwendolyn Brooks, it was to critique the fair maiden, right? Well, you know, maybe she doesn't have to be fair. Maybe she doesn't have to be a maiden, right? And right. other ways, this sort of this concern with uh, platonic um, metaphysical love. Maybe meta it's not metaphysical. Maybe it's down and dirty. Or this <laughs> questions of being fettered and enslaved, right? And so that was interesting to me. So I had this chapter, I'd been writing this for a long time, and when I kept going back and forth with my editor, sometimes he would say, look, I think you're gonna need a tutorial on the history of sonnets in order for people who are coming at this as black poetry scholars to understand where people are responding to. So I went back and I sort of got a, and this is my chapter two, um, a history of representative sonnets and Dunn's holy sonnets, um, which is that famous one that I have in my book right before this one, uh, Sonnet 14, um, where he describes God's love as a physical assault. Batter my heart, three-personed God for you, as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Right. So, right. This, this idea of the sonnet is grappling with God's love. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's knocking you down. And it was right <laughs> about then that I found this other anthology and I'm leafing through it. And I came across this poem and I'm like, whoa, this is definitely in conversation with a whole bunch of sonnet traditions, but clearly in, in that kind of idea of, of God's plan to kind of knock you around and, and make sure you keep the faith, right? So in this poem, um, doesn't always say when you're reading it out loud, the first blow hurt, the second, the first line is the first blow hurt, the second line, God is love is love, is in parentheses, right? So the second, uh, fourth, and sixth lines are in um, Parentheses, God is love, is love, sustain my love, O Lord above, they were angry with their brother. This, this um, you know, he's clearly in conversation with some, you know, something religious, some religious person or idea or concept. And, you know, for me, I was reading that as definitely in dialogue, uh, maybe not just, maybe not done alone, but in that tradition. I was also fascinated, that's all really fascinating. Um, and I had also sort of fixated the first couple of times that I read through this on the parentheses, and I went a couple of different directions with it. I think the first time I read it, I read it as an internal dialogue with the self, yes. where the parentheses is answering the, you know, the first blow hurt. No, I'm going to remind myself, God is love. Don't strike back. My blood spit into the dirt. Sustain my love. Like, <laughs> don't. Curses circled one another. Well, I'm getting a little heated up here. You know, <laughs> I, I saw that as one way that it played yes. out. Um, and then I've also, I think because I've been listening to this collection, there's a, a three CD set called When I Reach That Heavenly Shore, Unearthly Black Gospel, 1926 mm -hmm. to 1936. And it's this collection of, some of it is gospel music and some of it is just like field recordings of preachers from the time. 
And so much of it is done in call and response um, that I started hearing that first six lines sort of in the cadence of call and response mm -hmm. where the, the, nice. line, the first, third, and fifth lines are uh, like a minister and then you can hear the whole congregation answer with the lines in parentheses trying to remind this single voice nice. of, of a, a broader kind of you know potential way of seeing things he's mine and i'm here he's mine because i bought him anything that a man buys belongs to him I give a and then that and the the beginning of the second stanza hits so hard because despite all of this that's been going on nope i'm too weak i can't help but have another history <laughs> collide with my present moment and then that second stanza is sort of feeling the weight of a different kind of history and a different kind of uh maybe an angrier version of uh you know a more mm -hmm. old testament kind of religion mm -hmm. infuses that um, well there's a couple of echoes there if i can because yeah. you know the ways to read this poem right we're reading it we started out reading it as a as a as in, in its literary context right in in this question of what do you have to know to what do you know what do you bring to this poem that you know external exogenous to this poem right and if you know the sonnet tradition you know don that there's a certain kind of thing that's going there or if you know call and response and the, that's you know one and you know those kinds of um, forms and protocols and traditions, that's also exactly right. Then we're also looking at the fact that it's 1968, right? It's the year King gets assassinated and it's the rise of the Black Panther and Black Power movement, right? So it's the turn from nonviolence to say, no, 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 enough of this nonviolence, right? So that the poem itself is they were angry with their brother, you know, could also be Stokely Carmichael, right? to recognize who our major enemy is. The major enemy is not your brother, flesh of your flesh and blood of your blood. The major enemy is the honky and his institutions of racism. That's the major enemy. That is the major enemy. Also be like enough with this non-violence. What has it gotten to us, King, for us, King is dead. And again, I don't know exactly the dates here. Uh, um, when it was written, you know, the publishing is one thing, but when it was written, but it clearly, it appears at, the, at this turn, right, toward the Black Power movement. Um, and then, as you had said, Connor, like, I was too weak. That third line from the second stanza, a single freckled fist, the way that the freckled fist yeah. evokes race, evokes skin color, right? Just, just brief, the brief, briefest glimpse. And yet suddenly, like, that's the way race is, enters the palm with this white fist. It's a bit of an echo of something that we talked about when we talked about the Claude McKay poem, exactly. which is that the women have blue eyes. Exactly. It doesn't right? say that white women are watching, but it says that the women have blue eyes. Blue eyes, yes. And clearly Emmanuel knows that because he knows this poem. He knows their, their poems really well. Um, I talk about a little bit. He had written this long piece in Black World or, um, yeah, Black World in about 1975 when he talks about the appropriateness of the sonnet for Black poetry. And he goes through and talks about McKay and he knows those poems well. So, yes, I think he's doing exactly the same thing there. Something that I found fascinating on the subject of fists is because there is this echo of the fist later where it talks mm -hmm. about Gabriel Prosser's dogged knuckles. Mm -hmm. And I found the use of knuckles there fascinating because there's such a, a history of the knuckle bones of saints and how Prosser was hanged for being 
you know, someone trying to incite a slave rebellion, but there's a form of martyrdom going on there. And it seems to me like that was adding a dose of holiness to violence, which would normally be seen as the sort of taboo or unholy act. But there's this echo of what I took to be a kind of divinity there as well. I like that. I hadn't seen that there before. And I think you're exactly right. Um, I think you're exactly right. The dogged, I wasn't quite sure about. That one, um, that seemed, uh, I, you know, I'm still pu puzzling over that. Um, but knocked out the memory of his name. But I like the, what I like about that line with Gabriel Prosser's dogged knuckles. Wait, is that the one? Is that the one that's got with Gabriel Prosser's dogged knuckles? Yeah, that's the only line that's got 10 full syllables. Right. I struck an ancient blow. It's so rich. And the thing is, you know, you don't, you, you get the Freedom Rider uh, washout in the title, I'm hopeful. All readers will know what the Freedom Riders were, but <laughs> well, the Freedom Riders were a group originally, a group of thirteen individuals, of which John Lewis was one, um, who got on buses to head south uh, to fight uh, for civil rights and voting rights um, in the South for African Americans. And um, the endeavor was highly organized and highly trained. Uh, they knew that they would um, be victims of violence, the KKK, the local folks who were not interested in voting rights um, would be attacking the buses. And in fact, they were, uh, the buses were raided by KKK, the Freedom Riders, various stops were beaten up, spit on. And the um, training that they would, had received in nonviolent protest was training to withstand uh, you know, being called names, being spit upon, um, you know, how to curl up in a ball and um, be kicked and hit and beaten and try to withstand it as, as, as much as, as you could. And as you pointed out, and as the poem points out, the Freedom Riders were often subject to incredible violence and disrespect and degradation. Um, they're the famous three riders who were killed, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. And in fact, there's been quite a bit of art, not just this poem that was inspired by the activism of the Freedom Riders, um, the group, the Freedom Singers, which went to the South as well. Uh, the, the lead singer describes the process of writing the song in the Mississippi River and talks about how they woke up to the news that three of the writers were missing and said that they all knew kind of instantly on some level that they were dead. Uh, and shortly thereafter, they put together uh, the song In the Mississippi River, which is about all of these bodies that had been showing up in the river, various lynchings um, of activists and of people from from communities. And, and that song ends with the refrain, which points to the activism of the writers. We have to stop them from going in the river. From going to the river, stop them from going um, and and has this very the whole song is is haunting and, and powerful it's moving and that there's a great um one of the episodes of the pbs documentary eyes on the prize is devoted to the freedom riders and the training the nonviolent training which itself was brutal um having the individuals you know themselves practice um being called names and practice being beaten up and practice not losing your cool. And, and that notion of, of the practice and the training of staying cool uh, is also part of this poem. I'm really glad you brought up Eyes on the Prize because I don't believe that 
documentary specifically is available for streaming right now, but PBS has made a number of historical documentaries about civil rights and about the black experience available, including the American Experience episode about the Freedom Riders um, and the two very uh, significant recent series by Henry Louis Gates, who I know you've collaborated with, um, The African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross and Reconstruction America After the Civil War, all episodes available to stream for free right now. Um, and because we've been talking about John Lewis, there's another uh, sort of quieter documentary called The Barber of Birmingham, Foot Soldier of the Civil Rights Movement, which is like a 25, 26 minute documentary about this guy who was exactly as the title says, a foot soldier of the civil rights movement, put his life on the line, showed up day after day, was an activist. There are a couple of other individuals like him who show up um, in the documentary and whose stories kind of come to light. And these are people who went to register to vote a dozen times, kept going back after they were turned away over and over again, who put themselves in positions to be in danger, but whose names are not written in history books. Um, and James Armstrong, who's the barber, uh, who's the center of it, was actually the, the man who was carrying the American flag on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh -huh. along with the marchers. Uh, and so he went back every single year and carried the flag across the bridge at the various memorials um, until until he died in, in 2009. Um, you know, in thinking about John Lewis and the ways that thinking about nonviolence as a form of social protest, which John Lewis really embodied um, and which is not, I mean, we're seeing protests in the street, but we're not seeing trained practice of uh, of nonviolent protest as a, as a form, um, it's interesting to read this poem in that context to think about just the ways that a sonnet makes meaning in the tension and the release of the form, the lines that are containing the poem, right? The lines that are are structuring the poem and are directing and orchestrating the mood and the emotions of the poem that you are constraining yourself when you're writing a, a sonnet. Um, it is that constraint that allows the breaking free, that allows the anger, that allows you really to feel and hear the poet's voice makes so much more sense. You know, I mean, the fact that it's about a freedom rider and to think about that training of not gonna not gonna hit back I'm not gonna hit back i'm gonna stay within my 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 scanty plot of ground of the sonnet um and to see him blow up it's it's uh, really resonant yeah no that's a really good point and i was actually just listening to um the recent episode of the daily uh the new york times podcast uh the one about um John Lewis's legacy and something that they mentioned sort of was the, it was interesting to hear them talk about the kind of point of nonviolent tactics um, and how it was supposed to be a sort of redemptive suffering. About sitting in, or sitting down. In 1960, as students, we were really standing up for the very best in the American tradition. Um, and I found that really interesting, both in terms of, you know, this poem 
and how the idea of redemption and the kind of that like transcendent quality is being is kind of like the direct point of contention in the poem that he's like talking with the Lord in a way and doing his best to kind of um, resist his impulses to fight back. Um, but then at the same time, it also, another interesting part about that episode was that they talked about one of John Lewis's early drafts of his speech in the March on Washington and how he had initially compared this sort of flood of nonviolence across the country in terms of um, Sherman's, you know, march like on the south in this sort of scorched earth campaign, which then got uh, revised out of, <laughs> as it was deemed a little too inflammatory. It's interesting thinking about that, even though, you know, Lewis was such a proponent of nonviolence, it's clear at least at that point, you know, he was maybe 23 at the time, that there was a, a very like kind of, it wasn't a passive, nonviolence wasn't passive, uh, and it sort of verged on a kind of holy militancy. I sort of also sort of see that, although it, it ends up being, the, the poem has a, the speaker ends up sort of throwing a punch, but it's an ancient blow. And it just, it made me think of like all of the ways that these actions were channeling these sort of deep historical roots, whether it be, you know, in the poem, the, the slave ships and the long black moan, or in Lewis's case, uh, you know, Sherman's, Sherman's march. It's really extraordinary. Yeah. So uh, did you guys know much about Emmanuel, James Emanuel? I actually, uh, I don't know about you, Jack, but I was not too familiar with him. Um, and yeah, it would be great if if you could provide some, some context on Emmanuel. I um, don't actually know very much about, I know a little bit. So let me just say, you know, in writing this book, I wanted to focus on the poems. I wanted to do just literary influence, right? Which poems, like you just did with the Knuckles speaking to the Claude McKay, Poem. Yes, I knew that Aunt Emmanuel had known about uh, McKay, but if you're teaching this in a classroom, right, and you're just teaching these two sonnets, you've given these students enough to say, ah, this poem is doing that thing, right? So, you know, you're not requiring that the student go on Wikipedia and learn stuff. It's all right there, <laughs> which is what I think is the best way to teach, right? Let the students see it in the, in the language itself, in the way it's deployed. But um, after I finished the book, I started actually writing and learning a little bit more <laughs> about the people that I, I'd written about. And Emmanuel um, really is a fascinating guy. Um, you know, he ended up getting his PhD from Columbia um, and worked a while at, at CUNY, but just couldn't deal with the racism here. And his son, who was living in L.A., um, got beaten up at the police and uh, committed suicide. Uh, afterwards. I don't know the details of it. I know that that obviously this broke Emmanuel the way it obviously would break a father. And he moved to Paris and said, you know, to hell with America and lived the rest of his life in Paris. And I think was working on a book about his son. I don't remember if he's completed it or not, but was, uh, you know, was 
a little bit of, a, of an outsider to the black poetry circles. Uh, he was a formalist. He believed in form. He, you know, I'm not going to call them Western European forms because so many black practitioners use, use them, but he wrote a lot of sonnets. He wrote a lot of haiku, like Richard Wright, and um, uh, published from far away. So this um, interview I saw on the web with him recently said that he is, you know, the most underappreciated black poetry of, poet of the 20th, 20th century, which maybe he is. Go read more of him, young men. Absolutely. If this sonnet is anything to go on, I'm willing to hop on board with that. Yeah, it's amazing. And his haiku are great. So that's also, that's great. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I have about 30 thoughts, I think, in my head. Um, separately, there could be a great book on the the, the Black haiku tradition with mm -hmm. uh, Manuel uh, Richard Wright and also Etheridge Knight wrote some great yes. haiku um, from when he was in prison, I believe. Yes. Um, but yeah, I will. So just w the poem that we talked about last episode uh, was an excerpt from Claudia Rankin's uh, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, um, which is a wonderful book, but uh, her other book, Citizen, which is the much sort of more well-known mm -hmm. one, has this great part where she talks about how there's like a self self and a historical self mm -hmm. um and something that you had mentioned jack and i feel like is in this poem is like <laughs> there's you're you know there's the the self self is the just like the fist engagement and then that second stanza is like the historical self taking over kind of this poem actually seems to be such a good embodiment of that idea and I was wondering, you you had mentioned the, you know, how, you know, so with Gabriel Prosser's Dog and Knuckles is like the one line of the poem that has the 10 syllables. And, you know, and you were talking about how Emmanuel is such a formalist. So I was curious, the engagement and like subversion with the sort of traditional sonnet conventions, the sonnet often you know, you talk about has the octave, the eight line sort of first mm -hmm. part, and then the six line, the sestet second part. Um, and there's more parts to it, but this one, you know, this poem sort of inverts that you observe and starts with a sestet and then has the, I think you note in the book, the sort of Shakespearean couplet, uh, curses circled one another, they were angry with their brother which usually in the, in the Shakespeare sonnet ends the poem. Mm -hmm. um, but this is like putting the end at the beginning, at least formally. And then maybe this is too many things to bring up in <laughs> one question, but the, the last sort of one, one other really interesting part that you discuss in a lot of other poems is the like double voicedness of a sonnet and how like partly through the sort of octave sestet um, back and forth, the sonnet is like such a perfect form for having these competing mm -hmm. voices or these these arguments and back and forth and kind of thing. And that how black poets sort of recognize that, and then I think like the sort of double consciousness that Du Bois was talking about—that kind of experience of being black in America—sort of provided us was a made the sonnet kind of like a vessel. 
I don't know. I was just curious, like, what other ways there's so I many have a things, sense yeah. of what you're asking so uh, about <laughs> about what makes this vessel or this structure or this you know this this dynamic apparatus of the sonnet so perfect for black poetry right and so all the things that that had made it always double voiced or um split consciousness or present in historical or any kind of doubleness that we all have which is the crisis of modernity hmm. that if you go back to the history of the sonnet right? And this notion of metaphysical and the physical with the octave, like, I love you, fair maiden, you're so awesome, I can't have you, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then the sestet coming back to the ground, right? And if you think about, I, I'm writing a piece right now for a collection, um, trying to really grapple with the sonnet and lynching poems. And I know you did the lynching, Claude McKay's poem, and that you've, you know, obviously, If We Must Die is a sonnet in its way. But there are a number of lynching poems, mostly by Leslie Pinckney Smith, who that appeared in um, The Crisis. And I talk about a couple of these, Yusuf Kamenyaka's poems on Emmett Till, Marilyn Nelson's poems on Emmett Till, and she's, those are amazing. What is your ethical place as an observer? What does that mean to be that onlooker? What does that mean to create that testimony? So this is the subject position of somebody writing about a lynching. And so when you have a black writer writing about a lynching, that's a fairly vexing way place to be. And most lynching poems or execution poems or poems like that, it's usually written retroactively so that the, the writer is putting himself into this position, which gives him some freedom from being right there. To get back in the long way around to James Emanuel's poem, he's, it, which is not about a lynching, but it is about violence, he's there right? He's having that internal dialogue, as you, as you had said, Jack, right? He's, he, and I like that reading better, so I'm, I'm going to go with yours from now on, and, <laughs> you know, and he's, he's having that dialogue and having that question of, am I here? Am I not here? Am I meta metaphysical? Am I phys physical, right? And all of this stuff is embedded right there, and I think that if you are steeped in the sonnet tradition and you understand what these practitioners have been doing for these centuries, it allows you to think about where am I going to place my subject when I'm writing about race violence? Am I going to put my, am I going to put my poetic speaker in a physical place or a metaphysical place? Or can I do both at different places in the poem? And I think that the, the point of the sonnet is it allows some flexibility. So is one of you going to read it the second time? Uh, traditionally, there's one reader all the way through. So if you don't mind reading it again, we would love to have you read it again. All right. I'll read it again because it's such a fantastic poem. Oh, and before you read it, we should just say the, I think we you've mentioned it uh, before, but the book that you've come out with that we've been discussing this whole episode is Forms, Forms of Contention. Of contention. Oh, well, in, it's called Forms of Contention, Influence, and the African-American Sonnet Tradition. And both influence within the tradition and uh, without the tradition. Yes. Link great. in the show notes if you want to go get your own copy. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. I will read this again. Uh, James Emanuel, Freedom Rider, Washout. The first blow hurt. God is love, is love. My blood spit into the dirt. Sustain my love. Oh, Lord above. Curses circled one another. They were angry with their brother. I was too weak for this holy game. 
a single freckled fist knocked out the memory of his name. Bloody, I heard a long black moan, like waves from slave ships long ago. With Gabriel Prosser's dogged knuckles, I struck an ancient blow. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. See you next time. <laughs>